You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. All right, well, good morning, church family. Good to see you. Glad you're here today. Uh, We are continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark, and we have made our way to Mark's pinnacle moment in his Gospel. The question that we've had before us as we've been studying Mark's Gospel has been Mark's question, and it's, who is Jesus? Who is he? And Mark has been putting before us Jesus' most essential actions, his most powerful moments, his um, most important words, teaching about the kingdom of God. And now we've made it to where Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? So if you're not already turned to Mark chapter 8, I want to invite you to turn there with me. It's an important text. Before we jump back into the text and start making our way through it, I do want to tell you about one, uh, one need that we have right now as a church. And I'll say it that way, as a need. Our mission as a church is to reach, teach, equip, and send people with the good news of Jesus. That's our mission. And we have an opportunity right now to... Uh, really live out that mission as a church, particularly with the kids of this church. I don't know if you know this or not, but this is really, this church is really a, a children's ministry disguised as a church. <laughs> this is often what it feels like. There are so many young children in this church, and that is an amazing, amazing thing. That's such a blessing. And so as we get prepared to head into the fall semester, we are uh, in need of eight people who would be willing to help us uh, teach, reach, and teach and equip are the children of this church with the good news of Jesus. And so if you're not currently serving with kids, um, I just wanted to make that ask. Would you consider that? Would you prayerfully consider jumping in and beginning to serve with kids? We want to add another class uh, starting in September, especially for our older elementary kids so that they can uh, learn in an age-appropriate way each week. And, and so if that's you, maybe you've been on the fence about it, um, this, is, this is the nudge to maybe say, jump in, give it a try. I promise you'll be blessed. Erin, uh, would you just wave? This is Erin. She read our scripture passage today. Uh, she'll be back by the Connect booth in the lobby after service. And so if that's you, would you just grab her and let her know that you're interested in starting that process? Okay, Mark chapter 8. Up until this point in Jesus' life and in his ministry, there have been some questions and there have been some uncertainty swirling around him. Who is he? If you remember, if you've been journeying with us, there was a moment in Mark's gospel where the question was even asked, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't, isn't he from Nazareth? People are trying to make sense of who is he. They've seen his works, the mighty things that he's done. The historical Jesus cannot be denied. And so people in Jesus' day are trying to make sense of him, much like people today in our day are trying to make sense of him. We get in chapter 6, verse 16, we even get Herod. Herod gets word of these massive crowds that are following this a Jewish Messiah figure. And even Herod is confused. Herod, Herod says, didn't I kill him? Thinking he, about John the Baptist. I, th- I thought I killed him already. He's confused. Is he John the Baptist reincarnated? What is going on? Who is this man, Jesus? There's others who think that Jesus is Elijah. Elijah is an important figure in Israel's history. He was a prophet. He was a miracle worker. We read about him in the book of 2 Kings, and he was taken up into heaven without dying. And so there were many that think maybe God has sent Elijah back. Elijah's returned. Who is Jesus? That's been the question. And in our text today, We are given a definitive moment where all of the uncertainties, all of the questions about who Jesus is gets settled. It gets cleared up, much like the sight of the blind man that we looked at last week. Who Jesus is, why he's come, and what it means to follow him comes into crystal clear sight. 
No longer are we left to our own human interpretations. No longer is it an option for us to take the historical Jesus and to try and fit him and mold him into our agendas. His identity, his purpose, his call, it all gets settled right here in this text. And the claim of Christianity, the claim of Mark, the claim of the Bible is that Jesus is king. That's who he is. He's king. We don't get to define him. We either crown him or we don't. Let's pray. Almighty God, you have revealed yourself to us in Christ Jesus, your son, and I pray simply that you would open our eyes this morning to see your word, that you would, Lord, shut out all other voices, all other distractions, help us open our ears to hear the whispers of your Holy Spirit. And God, we pray that you would open our hearts this morning to receive your truth, to see you for who you are, that our heart's affections would be stirred by the person, the work, the mission, and the call of Christ. I pray that no matter how we came into this place this morning, that we would leave seeing you clearly and loving you supremely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Three things this morning, the identity of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus, the call of Jesus comes into clear sight. First, the identity of Jesus. Look back at the text, Mark Chapter 8, starting in verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Peter proclaims, you are the Christ. If we're going to understand this text, we need to understand the word Christ. Remember, many years ago when I was doing youth ministry, I taught a lesson on this passage, and there were some students in our youth ministry that thought Christ was Jesus' last name. They didn't grow up in church. And so they were like, whoa, wait a second, what's going on here? There's something to that word. It's not his last name. What does it mean? If we're going to understand the text We need to understand the word. It's both a word with meaning and it's a title. It's a word that gets delivered to us by Mark, but it's preloaded with generations and generations and generations of of meaning. Kids in the room, imagine if your parents took you to Gaddyland and they pulled out a game card and they said, kids, this card has been preloaded for generations and generations of your ancestors with tokens. You'd be like, that's a powerful card. (laughs) Uh, I'm about to clear out the claw machine. Uh, let's go, right? This word, Christ, it's been preloaded with meaning as it comes to us in the text today. Very literally, the word means anointed one. That's the meaning of the word. In a, in a lowercase sense, it was used throughout Israel's history to reference Israel's kings, kings who were anointed by the priest as they took a role to lead God's people in God's ways for God's purposes. But the title, the Christ, means more. It means the anointed one. The title, the Christ, it's actually tapping into uh, something that was central to Israel, to, to their identity as a people, to their purpose as a nation, their purpose of belonging to God for his glory and for his blessing in the world. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, the Christ had come to mean the anointed one, the Messiah, the king to end all kings, the king who is going to put everything right. You are 
the Christ, that Christ, Peter says. You see, the Old Testament tells us the history of the nation of Israel, and it's a history that's rooted in an identity as God's people, a people through whom God would use as a vehicle in the world to bless the whole world. It's a, being a people of a promise, a promise that starts all the way in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, following sin, when sin and death and decay and curse enters into the world, God makes a promise because he's a redeemer. And he makes a promise. He says that, that there would later come a son. There would come a son who would undo the curse. A son would come. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. A son would come who would undo the pain and the curse of sin and of death and of Satan. And this promise, it gets passed on. It gets passed on from generation to generation, and it becomes the central theme of the people of Israel. It gets passed on from Abraham to David, from patriarchs to kings to prophets to priests. And Israel is waiting and looking and longing for this Messiah. And much like maybe a kid who is waiting and longing for Christmas or waiting and longing for that Amazon package to arrive, um, there could be some whining and some fussing and some rebellion and some impatience, and Israel was the same way. Uh, they often, they often uh, started to worship other gods and the gods of foreign nations. And so God, throughout their history, would send them into exile. Uh, they would often be um, held uh, captive by other nations, first Babylon, then Persia. And by the time that we get to Jesus' day, this expectation, this longing for this Christ, for this promised son, for this king in the heir of David, it's at an all-time high. Why? Well, because in Jesus' day, the people of Israel are... Uh, are being occupied by Rome. They are, uh, they are under the heavy hand of Rome and of Roman oppression, and there is this heightened sense of desire and of longing for freedom, for a leader, for Messiah, for the Christ to come. They're looking for a leader who will lift them up toward freedom, toward power, out of taxation, and into the long-awaited promises of God for abundance. And I want you to know that in Jesus' day, this hope, this messianic expectation, if you will, it, it took on many different flavors and many different um, uh, um, uh, uh, flavors and hopes and spaces. It was seasoned in different ways. There were some, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that thought that, that, that the Messiah would come whenever God's people were finally obeying his law rightly. That's why we see Jesus interacting with the Pharisees and often talking about how they judge sinners and outcasts. There were others that were called the zealots. The zealots thought that it was going to come through war, that this leader was going to come and he was going to come with a sword. He was going to be a warrior and that they were going to take down Rome and it would be with a sword by which this leader, this Christ, this Messiah would take the throne and claim all of the promises of God. There were others that thought that what God wanted them to do was try to just escape, right, and kind of live out in, uh, the, out in the, the, the countryside and just stay away from the Romans, not to become like the Romans, and what they would do is that they would take different promises from the prophets, promises from their Hebrew scriptures, and they would turn up the volume on the promises that kind of fit their expectation, that, uh, that kind of uh, you know, uh, went with their flavor and their liking, and they would mute or turn down the scriptures that didn't. And there's one particular scripture, Isaiah chapter 53, that talks about the Christ. It talks about this suffering servant who would come. I want to read you a few, a few verses out of Isaiah 53 talks about how this suffering servant would come and that he would have no form of majesty, that we should look at him, no beauty, that we should desire him, that he would be despised and rejected, that he would be a man of sorrows, that he would bear our grief and carry 
our sorrow, that he would be stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, that he would be pierced for transgressors, he would be crushed for iniquities. He would be, by his wounds, we would be healed. That though he would be afflicted, he would not open his mouth. He would be like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before its shears. He would not open his mouth. That he would be killed with the wicked and that he would be buried with the rich. That many would be counted righteous because of him, because he would bear their iniquities. That he would pour out his soul to death that he would bear the sins of many and make intercession for transgressors. Right here, in their scriptures. Yet most scholars would tell you that in Jesus' day, there was not one person that ever connected their messianic hope, their picture of the Messiah, to a suffering servant. Isn't that interesting? And so Jesus is very much aware that while Peter is recognizing that he is the Christ, he is the seed of the woman, that he is the heir of David, that he is the son of man, that his disciples do not yet understand his purpose. So it's one thing to believe that he's the son of God. It's a whole other thing to understand his purpose. And so Jesus begins to teach. The purpose of Jesus now comes into clear sight. Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the son of man, that's, that's a messianic term out of the book of Daniel. Jesus is using it here like a synonym for the Christ. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. This is a different kind of leader than they would have ever expected. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. He's he's teaching it clearly. He really wants them to understand it's critical that you not just identify that I'm God's sent Savior, but that I have been sent to suffer and die and be raised. He's saying it to them plainly. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. Um, There is a particular word in this scene that I believe is the word that trips Peter's wires that sets sirens off for Peter and sends him into indignation. And it's the word must in verse 31. It's the word must. In some translations of the Bible, we get the word must twice. It's not only that he must suffer, but it also says that he must die, that he must be killed. You see, Jesus doesn't say that he might encounter suffering. Jesus doesn't say that the leaders of Israel, kind of on this path to the throne, on this messianic a journey and adventure that the leaders might reject him. He doesn't say that he could possibly be killed. It's definitive. Jesus says it as if it is the way, the only way. It's why he has come. It's God's plan for saving his people and redeeming the world. Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah, and the Messiah must suffer and must die and must be raised. And we need to ask ourselves, why does Peter respond the way that Peter responds? Is it because he's concerned about his friend? Is it because he doesn't want his friend to be hurt? Doesn't want his friend to be killed? By the way, um, this isn't like a gentle side conversation that Peter has with Jesus. It's not like he pulls Jesus aside and he's like, hey, uh, buddy, I'm concerned about your well-being. Are you sure that this is the way? It's not what's happening at all. The the word rebuke, which says that Peter rebuked Jesus, it's the same word with the same intensity as when Jesus would rebuke demons 
and call them out of people. There's an intensity here. Peter is indignant. He is angry. He's mad. He's saying, this isn't the way. Jesus, what are you thinking? Why would he do this? Why would he respond this way? Well, because it's clear God's agenda, Jesus's agenda is not jiving with his agenda. God's plan is not his plan. And you can understand this, right? Peter's been invested in this mission. He's given a lot of time to Jesus. He's given a lot of money and resources to Jesus. Don't miss that. Uh, Jesus is spending a lot of time, we've watched this, cruising around the sea from village to village to village. How do you think he's doing that? Whose boat do you think he might be using? Peter's invested in this. And he's saying, this isn't the way it's supposed to go, Jesus. Theologian Alan Cole says, I love this quote, came across it this week. He says, the natural mind never objects to the concept of a Messiah, provided that he is to be a Messiah who commends himself to the natural mind. What's he saying? What's he saying? He's saying we can all get on board with the hero. We can all get on board with the Savior as long as the hero praises our thinking and performs our preferences. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that. I want you to sit with that for a minute. I'm certain that this is relevant to your life right now. I'm certain that it is. I'm certain that if you were just as bold as Peter that you would stand up and that you might want to rebuke Jesus because he isn't saying what you want him to say. He isn't doing in your life what you want him to do. His purposes aren't matching your purposes for your life. He isn't saving you the way that you'd save yourself. Like Peter, if you could be honest, you might stand up to Jesus today and you might say, Jesus, this isn't how it's supposed to go. This isn't where I expect it to be at this point in my life. This isn't how it was supposed to go with my marriage. This isn't how it was supposed to go with my job. This isn't how it was supposed to go with my kids, with my health. This isn't how it was supposed to go with my ministry or with my finances. I want you to hear this morning that it's one thing to see Jesus for who he is. It's a whole nother thing to accept Jesus's purpose and Jesus's mission. Will you hear that God's plan for salvation, God's plan for victory for you, God's plan for freedom and abundance for you does not jive with human wisdom? Will you receive that this morning? In fact, Jesus goes on to tell Peter that, that he has come to save us from human ways of thinking, human ways of self-saving, human ways of redeeming, that he has come to pry our hands off the things of this world, things that are perishable and defiled, that he's actually come to open our eyes not to see the things of the world, but to see the things that are eternal. You see, it's in this moment that Jesus is trying to help his disciples see the kind of king that he is. It's in this moment that Jesus is trying to help all of us see why the cross is necessary. See, Jesus wants his disciples in this lesson to realize that he has not come to do battle against Rome. Their idea of salvation was far too small. It was far too small. Jesus had not come to do battle against Rome. He had come to do battle against sin and its power and its penalty. His enemy isn't Tiberius the emperor or Pontius Pilate or Herod. See, their enemy, their way of thinking was far too small. He came to do battle against Satan. He hadn't come to set them free from the grip of Roman taxation, but from the grip and the sting and the reality of death. And he's working to get their eyes off the earthly things, off their personal agendas, and open their eyes to God's purposes. 
And I just want to I just want to say to us this morning before we go any further, that if it feels like Jesus isn't working in your life, or maybe if it feels like Jesus isn't working for you, perhaps, just perhaps, it's because you are trying to make him, like Peter, a Christ of your own cause. You are trying to make him, like Peter, a Messiah of your own making. You're, like Peter, trying to make him an agent of your own agenda, And I just want you to know Jesus is clear by the way he rebukes Peter that if your agenda is the end, then Jesus is nothing more than just a means. And you aren't following him. You haven't crowned him. You are using him. And this makes sense to Jesus' rebuke, doesn't it? I mean, note the severity of what he says to Peter. He's essentially saying Satan is working to deceive you. You are reaching to be God. You're following the same pattern of Adam and Eve. In fact, I've come to open your eyes to this, to, 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 to meet your greatest need, to set you free from your truest enemy, to overcome uh, the, the most real problem in your life, your sin. See, we must understand not only the identity of Jesus, but we must embrace and believe and hold fast to the purpose of Jesus. He is the Christ, sent with only one mission, sent to suffer and die so that you could be pardoned rather than judged so that you could be forgiven rather than condemned, so that your sins could be atoned for and the wrath of God appeased. This is why he has come, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, because the wages of sin are death before a holy and righteous and perfect creator. Because none of us on our own could ever do enough or accrue enough to cleanse the deep stain of sin that is on our life. Yet... In God's great love for you, would you, just, would you receive this this morning? And because of God's great love for you, God the Son has come to pay the price. That's why he's come. There's nothing greater that God could do for you than this. In other words, God has already done for you the greatest work in your life. There's nothing greater. He's the Christ sent to suffer, and he's the Messiah sent to be raised on the third day, raised victoriously so that you could live, so that you could experience a new way, different than that same old human way of self-centered, self-glory, self-seeking, self-indulging, self-saving stuff of Adam and Eve, that same stuff that's been played out in every culture, in every generation, and it always bears the same fruit, the works of the flesh, anger and malice and strife and wars and lust and greed over and over and over again, that way of the world, that way of sin and death. But Jesus has come to make a new way, to offer new life, life in his kingdom, where he rules, where he reigns, where his spirit bears fruit among us. This is the gospel. Isn't this good news? And if you want to access that good news, if you want to experience full forgiveness and atonement, freedom from the things of the earth, freedom from the guilt and shame that has put a deep stain on our soul, if you want new life, In the spirit, Jesus says, you must follow me. It's not just that you understand who I am and that you come to terms with my purpose, but that you follow me. Third point, the call of Jesus comes into clear sight. Mark 8, 34. And calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, this is important, by the way. This is not just a lesson for Peter. This is not just the lesson for the 12, but it's a lesson for anyone who would see Jesus and who would believe Jesus 
and who would want what Jesus offers. It says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I imagine that's one of those like gulp moments when you hear Jesus give this word. I imagine this is a moment that, that thinned the crowds. It's a moment that thinned the crowds. In verse 38, Jesus alludes to another advent of the Christ, another coming of the Christ. Look back at verse 38. The Son of Man, when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. He tells us that in the second appearing, he will not come as a suffering servant who brings salvation, but he will come as a glorious king who will bring judgment and justice to the earth. And until that day, until that day of his second coming, Jesus makes it clear his call. In fact, what's interesting is the, the must in the first section of this passage, the Son of Man must suffer and must die, it actually gets replaced in this bottom section of the text with an if, with an invitation. If anybody wants what I offer. If you want the cross to count for your life. If you want the sufferings of Jesus to bear something beautiful and glorious in your life. If you want the resurrection and the empty tomb to matter for your life. Jesus says you must follow me. What does it mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus? There are two things that Jesus tells us. The first is a call to self-denial. It's one thing to see who Jesus is and believe it. It's another thing to take hold of what Jesus has come to do for us. It's a whole nother thing to actually follow Jesus, follow the way of Jesus, to walk his road. Jesus says we must deny ourselves. Self-denial means letting go of that spirit within us of self-determination. That spirit of I got it. That spirit of there is strength within me that can provide what I need. It's a call to let go of that spirit of self-determination and replace it with obedience and dependence upon Jesus. Jesus, you are king. It's to crown him as king. Listen to what Keller again says here. It's helpful. He says Jesus is intentional with his word choice. He says the deliberately chosen Greek word for life here is the word psyche. From with it, we get our word psychology. It denotes a person's identity and personality and selfhood. What makes you distinct? Jesus is not saying, I want you to lose your sense of being an individual self. But Jesus is saying, don't build your identity on gaining things in this world. Jesus is saying, this will never work. I love this. Jesus is essentially saying, you are going to kill yourself. You're going to lose your life trying to be your own savior and trying to be your own king. Jesus is saying, if you want what I offer, give up on that and find your identity in me. You see, this is the invitation. This is salvation. Give up on all other ways of finding life and identity in your own strength and come and find it in me as your king, as your savior. I'm going to ask you this morning, are you trying to be your own savior and king? 
Is there situations in your life where you are trying to be your own savior and your own king? Jesus says, deny yourself. Be dependent and obedient upon me. The second thing that he calls us to is to follow his way. So he calls us to self-denial, and then he calls us to follow his way, to take up your cross. It tells us that following Jesus means that we embrace suffering and sacrifice. Um, let's, just, let's just be honest for a moment. Suffering and sacrifice are not two words that we like in the suburbs. It's like why we live here, right? Like, I don't want to suffer uh, 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 in traffic. Um, I don't want to sacrifice and, like, live in a small condo. Um, I don't want to suffer with, like, bugs and animals. I like, I, I like a nice manicured lawn. Um, I don't want to drive 45 minutes, like, you know, to get groceries or furniture. Uh, we love oh, these two words. We don't like these words in the suburbs, suffer and sacrifice. Yet Jesus says that they are absolutely essential if we are going to be his disciples. Jesus refers in verse 38 to life in this world as um, being adulterous and sinful days. He says we live in adulterous and sinful days. In other words, to walk with Jesus uh, is to oppose the, no the norms of this world. This is what he's getting at. He's getting at the fact that just by nature of following Christ, we are going to bump into sufferings and setbacks. We are going to be uncomfortable because Jesus is always opposing the norms of this world. Um, this summer, I got to spend some time on a vacation, vacation kayaking. And kayaking in itself is exhausting. Like I would go out in the mornings and I would kayak as long as I could. I would try and catch fish, but I'm not a very good fisherman. And I would kayak back. Kayaking in itself is exhausting. Kayaking against the current. I got stuck one day having to haul kids back in tubes against the current. Like kayaking back. That is a whole other kind of exhausting. And this is what Jesus is getting at. If you're going to come after me, be prepared for this. Be prepared. It should be hard. Following Jesus should be exhausting. It's going against the current of the world. It means that you might suffer. It means that, that you might be labeled. Um, it means that you might be attacked by a real spiritual enemy. The apostles seem to embrace this view in Acts chapter 14, verse 22. We're told that they encourage the disciples to continue in the faith, that through many trials they will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, that it was granted for you that for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. While all people in this life experience suffering and hardship, it does seem that those who take up the cross and follow Jesus will and should experience it in, with more precision and potency. In some places of the world, it looks like physical persecution. In, other, in our current cultural moment, it could look like social pressures to conform to beliefs and trends of the day and of the culture rather than holding on to ancient truths of God. It might look like sacrificing certain amounts of luxury and comfort in this life because you are going to live generously. You're going to give of your money and of your resources to serve others. It might mean that you choose a lesser career path because of Jesus, with one with less notoriety and less social capital, one where you aren't enslaved to work so that you can serve your family and your church, your neighbors. It might mean that you use that spare bedroom in your house that's too big for you anyway to shelter and love people in need, a foster child or someone who is wayward and needs a place to stay. It might mean that you deny your desires for vengeance and justice in order to forgive 
to truly forgive. Have you ever thought about this as a way of suffering and self-denying, a way of following the way of Christ? To, to that, that desire that's deep within us to hold on to grudges and to not to forgive and to grow bitter and to grow cynical, but to deny those things instead to choose to forgive, to truly forgive, to forgive a debt, to forgive a spouse who's deeply wounded us, to forgive a family member or a friend who has betrayed us. It leads us into a certain uh, a path of kind of having to bear that burden, the burden of that offense, but I'm going to take it and I'm going to bear it. Why? Because what has Jesus done for me? What is his way? He has bared the burden of all of my offenses and he set me free. You see, this is the way of Jesus. It's the way of the cross. His identity has become clear. His purpose has become clear and his call has become clear. And you might be thinking, where's the good news in this? Where's the good news in this way of Jesus? Well, two things. One, tell me the person that has spent their whole life self-serving and self-seeking, self-indulging, that gets to the end of their life and has any measure of satisfaction. The way of the world doesn't work. Jesus calls us to have eyes to see a new way. Where is the good news in this? Where is the good news in this way of the cross? Well, here it is. The way of the cross always leads to an empty tomb. The way of the cross always leads to new life, to abundant, glorious life, the life of Christ that gets manifested in our own life as we follow his way. Jesus says, follow me, take up my cross, and you will truly live. Here's the beautiful thing about Christianity. It's that Jesus' earliest followers, we know that they understood this message. They didn't try and fit and mold Jesus into their own box. They didn't try and small down the gospel or weaken Jesus' call to discipleship to pray a prayer and fill out a card and join a program. They didn't do any of that. They took Jesus for his word and they followed him and they denied themselves and they took up their cross. And here's what we know about them. By the time we get to Acts chapter 13, there are people in the city called Antioch, kind of these you know, upper to middle class people in Antioch, and they start to look at these Jesus followers, these people, and they see the way that they love and they forgive and they serve and they open their homes and that they suffer and that they sacrifice. And they look at them and they guess what they start to call them? Anybody know? They call them people of the way. People of the way. What way? Jesus's way. Self-denial, cross-bearing. And then later they call them something different. They start to call them for the first time Christians. You know what that means? Little Christ's. Like these people are like Jesus. It's hard to understand. They're like sacrificing and serving and they're giving their life for not earthly things, but what maybe seems like this religious eternal things and it's bearing fruit and God is adding to their number day by day by day and it absolutely changed the world. Jesus in his way. It changed their lives and it changed the world. What's the message of this text? What is Mark's pinnacle moment? What's the message? Here it is. The gloomy news of the cross, it's actually the only way to be totally free, totally fulfilled, and totally alive. Will you embrace it? Let's pray. God, as we prepare to enter into a time of response this morning, I pray that you would move amongst us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us that you would help us to be honest with ourselves this morning, that you would help us to ask, have we embraced Jesus fully? Have we embraced not only his identity, but his purpose and his call? 
And as we come to your table, as we sing, as we pray, as we give, as we worship, would you move amongst us? Would you lead us? Would you guide us? Would you form us, Holy Spirit, into a people of your way, a people who bear your fruit for our good, for your glory, and for your mission here in this city? In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.